Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to uh, do, a, do an announcement. I try to take this beginning time of the sermon very seriously and only do very important announcements. And that announcement is that uh, as the deacons and I have been praying about what are ways that we can, uh, we can gather as a church that communicate the things we want to communicate. Uh, specifically, what are ways that we can gather as the church and communicate that we are a family? Uh, that we, like Zach, Zach said, we weren't saved to be Christians like pebbles and then put into a box called the church, but we're saved into a family, we're saved into a body. So scripture has all kinds of beautiful language about how we are one, uh, we're one body, united in one faith. And uh, because right now we are a small family and our auditorium is rather large, I feel like I'm going to be like leaning this way the whole, <laughs> the whole sermon. We're very heavy on that side, which is fine. Um, all that to say, uh, starting at the end of the month, on May 27th, uh, for at least the summertime, maybe a little longer, we're going to start having our worship gatherings in the chapel, which is the room on the other side of uh, our little lobby hallway area there. Uh, we did that for our Good Friday gathering uh, before Easter, and it was just a really sweet time where you could hear everybody singing, uh, you're just much closer, it's easy to uh, chat before and after, and uh, just, it just feels cozy. And uh, while it's just a simple thing, it's, you know, a, a physical location, I think it, it does communicate to ourselves and also to anyone who might visit and worship with us that we're a family, that what makes us the church is not this room, it's not this building, it's not how fancy things are or how high our stage is, but it's just the people of God gathered under the word uh, to, to sing it, to preach it, to, uh, to read it and listen to it. So we're going to give that a go, for at least for the summertime, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, if you don't like that idea... Uh, the deacons and I are thinking that once we kind of get an average attendance of about 55 people or so, that room will be too small, and then we'll move back in here. So invite your friends to church <laughs> if you don't like meeting in the chapel, you know, and, and, and invite, invite folks. So that, that, that's the announcement. We'll keep talking about it and make sure everybody's on the same page. If you have questions about that, uh, feel free to let me or a deacon know. We'd love to talk with you about kind of what our heart is behind that and, uh, and, and get us all on the same page. Before we uh, read our sermon text... Uh, we have a, a, a special treat. The Webs are going to give us a little testimony about uh, prayer in their life this past week. A little bit. They can use this mic. Welcome. This is Carrie Webb, her husband Eric. And uh, I got to hang out with them a little bit this week with stuff they were going through. And I just, it was a, a beautiful testimony about prayer last our last sermon, kind of the big takeaway was in prayer, we, we ask God for stuff. He wants us to ask him for stuff. Uh, and then we trust him and we receive his answer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. Uh, and so they, they had a great testimony about that. So why don't you tell us a little about your week and what, how prayer played into it. Okay. Um, we've been dealing with Eric's epilepsy for over seven years. And that um, in the quest to eliminate or at least significantly reduce his, the frequency of his seizures, he went last weekend to Grand Rapids, and um, they did a pretty extensive study to try to determine if um, brain surgery will be an option for him. And so they did a number of things to get him to have a, a seizure on Monday during business hours so they could get a scan after it. Um, and so after uh, last Sunday's sermon, um, we were praying pretty specifically about a, a seizure, even as specific as I, I prayed that he would have one at 9.30 Monday morning, just to get it over with. Um, and uh, he, 
did, uh, oh, and another um, silly thing kind of goes along with this specific is um, I prayed that he would be home uh, by Tuesday evening so that he could make it to our two daughters' um, school concert. Um, so he had two seizures Monday morning, um, but a new uh, heart issue during the seizures was discovered, so they couldn't get the scans in. Um, once the cardiologist and neurologist determined that it was best to finish the epilepsy part before dealing with the heart part, we were praying specifically that um, because 6 o'clock p.m. would be the cutoff for that day to try to make it happen before waiting until 9 a.m. the next morning. Um, we were praying that he would have one before 6 p.m. on Monday and that the heart issue wouldn't be an issue. Um, and praying specifically helped focus our prayers, um, helped us not to ramble, and at least for me, it, it kind of it gives me a peace knowing that I don't have to pray for all the options, that I just ask for what I want and leave it to God and trust him with if the answer is no or something else, then that is, that's what's best. And so um, at 5.55 Monday afternoon, he had a seizure and his heart kept working right and they were able to get the scan. And um, so that was, that was really a relief. And Tuesday morning, he had a pacemaker put in, and he was able to come in um, just in time Tuesday evening to make it to the concert. So it was praise really, God. yeah, praise God so much. And we just are amazed and overwhelmed and um, so thankful to experience um, God's just answer to so many prayers and awesome. see how he works. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. Yeah, I was so encouraged to uh, visit Eric on Tuesday uh, before he was discharged and just to hear that and hear that experience. Um, and I can totally relate to that. You want something and you pray for it and you're like, but also this could work. You could do this if you want God. And you, you feel like you got to hedge and hedge and ramble. And uh, I just love the testimony of I just asked our father what we need and then we just trusted him with it. So when Eric shared the story with me, he said, I, and then I went to sleep. I prayed for it and then I went to sleep. And I think that's a great... Uh, picture of being God's child and sleeping in, in trust. So um, we'll get into our sermon now. Alyssa is going to read our sermon text. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, and we'll get started. Our sermon comes from Matthew 6, 9-13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Father, we come before you needing to live in the reality, know the reality that you are, Father, as we continue to talk about prayer. Would you please uh, draw us deeper into the reality of your fatherhood? Would you quiet our hearts? Would you give us the ability to surrender all the cares that are running around our minds to you this morning so that we can uh, hear from you? I pray in the name of Jesus you would uh, protect the church from anything that's from me and not of you, that you would speak through me. 
and that you would unite us uh, in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the best class I ever took in seminary, I've told this story before, but you're going to hear it again. Let's be real. How much do we really remember of sermons? Uh, the best class I ever had in seminary, uh, really, you know, since kindergarten, it was, this is the best class, was the theology of the body. It was where we looked at scripture, and what is the theology of the fact that we have bodies as humans, that God in his perfect goodness and wisdom created us as humans with physical flesh and blood bodies. And the class had the most hodgepodge reading assignments because evangelicals, Protestant uh, Christian culture, has almost no books written about this topic. Like in, in our branch, our camp of Christianity, uh, it was, there was almost nothing that shares about how the gospel informs the way we relate to our bodies as Christians. And so we read this obscure book by a Catholic written in the 70s and uh, a whole slew of articles from all over the place. And the reason why my professor was teaching this class was because years ago he'd had a seminary student uh, come to him seeking prayer because the seminary student was having all these issues. He was having health issues. He felt terrible. He wasn't sleeping. His marriage was strained. Uh, he was anxious all the time. And, and since he was in seminary doing the Lord's work, right? Like that's the only reason you go to seminary, right? To do the Lord's work. No, there's lots of bad reasons to go to seminary. He was like, well, this must be the devil attacking. This must be a spiritual thing. And so my seminary professor asked him, well, what are you eating? And he's like, oh, just whatever I have time for. Normally just fast food. And are you sleeping? I don't have time for that. I'm doing the Lord's work. And uh, are, are you exercising? I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the Lord's work. And my professor, Dr. Allison, he said, maybe it's not so spiritual. Maybe it's a physical issue that's, that's causing spiritual issues. And the student was offended and went away kind of miffed. And I mean, Dr. Allison still prayed for him. But he seemed to pick up that we as Christians just have a huge void in our understanding on what it, what it means to be human and what it means that God himself gave us these physical bodies. Story time with Pastor Josh. Let me tell you another story. There was a pastor, very uh, popular, successful pastor, who honestly had an incredible gospel impact on my life through his podcasts and conferences and stuff. He started a church from scratch and it grew to be about 15,000 people meeting in all these different locations. He wrote best-selling books. and I remember specifically this pastor tweeted a picture of a baptism where a college kid was baptizing his father, his adult father. And I just remember being floored by that, that the gospel so worked in this uh, older man's life that he would let his punk college kid's son dip him in the water. Like the there's some glory there in, in, this, in this man's ministry. Like, Lord Jesus, do that work here in our church. But after maybe 20 years or so, of this meteoric rise and all this success and these glorious stories, in about the course of a week, this church ceased to exist. One Sunday, over 10,000 people gathered. The next Sunday, it was no longer an entity. And it wasn't because of drugs or prostitutes or embezzling money. It was because this guy, this pastor, and all his incredible results was just a massive jerk. He would just steamroll people in the name of the gospel, in the name of mission. There was a culture in the relationships of that church where you could get crushed because of Jesus. 
because the mission of Jesus had to go forward. So you either roll with the pack or get trampled underfoot. And I've said it before, the soul will find a way out, primarily in relationships. And the relationships just tanked this whole thing. I tell these stories because as we continue to look at Jesus' instruction on prayer, we see that Jesus, in his brilliant godness, and just with unbelievable simplicity, just beautiful simplicity, shows us how to pray with our whole person. Because we are now completely in the part where we're praying about ourselves. The first part, we're, we're praying about God. We're asking for stuff for ourselves. We see that Jesus instructs us to pray for our bodies, Give us this day our daily bread, our physical needs, our souls. Uh, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those, or forgiven our debtors. You see, our souls are, are primarily focusing on our relationships with God and with others. And then our spirit, lead us in, not, in tempta- not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which we're going to talk about that next week. Wholeness is a big deal to Jesus. When we look at Jesus, who lived the human life the way it was meant to be lived as God in the flesh, God as a human. He ended chapter 5 saying, You must therefore be whole, complete, as your heavenly Father is complete. This is what Jesus calls his followers to do, is to be whole, to be perfect, to be complete. And that's because to truly flourish as humans, to glorify God as his children, as his creatures, we need to be whole. Where our inner lives and our behaviors, our desires and our actions are aligned. Otherwise, who are we kidding? I mean, if everything in you most days wants to look at pornography, but by sheer force of will you manage not to, like how, how enjoyable is that? Would we call that flourishing? For sure, exercise your will and resist that, yes. But I don't think any of us would call that flourishing. If inside we want these things that destroy us, we want these things that are less than human, and so as we look at how Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to, how to pray as, as holy, fully humans, or how praying can help us become more whole as humans. And what we see in these instructions is that God, the God of the universe, cares deeply about every aspect of our human existence. It's just too marvelous for words. Because first we pray, look at verses 9 and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are glorious, lofty prayers for the, all of the cosmos to be aligned to the will and kingdom of God, which in all his eternal glorious beauty will make everything new and restored. And then we pray, also we'll take some bread it's just this beautiful juxtaposition of these cosmic prayers for God to align everything. And then also, I'm hungry. Also, I need food three times a day. Isn't that amazing? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be his name, hanging the stars in their place, controlling and sustaining every atom that is in existence of every molecule. He's concerned about our daily physical, relational, and spiritual morality needs. And this reminds us again that the foundation of prayer, if we're talking about prayer, we can't get anywhere without the fatherhood of God, our Father in heaven. 
our perfect, loving, present, all-knowing, in-control Father. Because there's just no true Christian prayer apart from the fatherhood of God. There's lots of, uh, the Bible would say, pagan prayer or non-Christian prayer where you have self-centered religious prayer where you use flowery language to impress people. Because God's opinion of you isn't that important. You want people's opinion of you to be, to be good. Or there's mindless babbling to appease a deity or try to summon his attention with our many words. But that's a, that's a God who's not there or might not be there or is distracted and limited. That's not a perfect, present father. And then we have Christian prayer, which is intimate conversation with our father, with a heavenly father. In light of our Father's concern and delight for us, we see that the invitation is to depend on Him with our whole person and also to submit to Him as our Father, as the authority in our lives. In each of these areas, Jesus' instructions, it, it shapes us to delight in depending on God. And it, and it invites us in a, in a, in, into submission in a way that leads to flourishing. So let's look at the body now. Give us this day our daily bread, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now it's possible to look at church history uh, and see strange patterns or strange elements in it. Specifically, you'll look at different uh, time periods or centuries where the church and their creeds and confessions and doctrinal statements, they seem to talk forever about a certain issue, a certain topic, a certain doctrine, and then just have like a sentence about another one. So there'll be, Jesus was God, and he was also fully human. And we see this in these passages, and these different, and it'll be spent all this time on the humanity of God, or the, yeah, the humanity of Jesus, with one sentence saying that he was God, and they spend all this time. Because why? In that century, there was a huge attack on the doctrine that Jesus was fully human. And then maybe a few centuries later, you'll see it flip-flop, where they'll say, uh, Jesus was human and fully God, and this is how we see all, you know, all these things, because there was an attack on Jesus' deity. And it could be any doctrinal thing, but you see that in church history. The church faithfully responds to its culture with whatever is true that's, that's being under attack. And so you see at different points in church history, there might be convictions or biblical truths that have been neglected, and, and so we have to respond according to, according to Scripture. And it might seem disproportionate, but I think it's important. I think it's healthy to address our current cultural climate. And one of the things I believe that is under attack and neglected right now in our culture is this theology of the body. We, as Christians, as the church, and our culture, our nation in general, have a terrible understanding of human embodiment, what it means to have a body, because there's two errors the first, and you see this a lot in, in, in our culture, is where we, both errors are devaluing of the body. But in our culture, what's really popular now is submitting our bodies to our own wills. Like we will not be confined by any frame of biology because our desires are what is the authority. We see this specifically today in sexuality and gender. In our culture, we, have, we leave less and less space for actual biology to define what is real. And instead, we seek to con conquer our biology, our gender, our sexuality, with what we feel is right. 
Do you see how that devalues what is? Devalues the biology of what is? This kind of God complex where we are going to rearrange the physical world to meet our whims? And listen, it's the cry of my heart that our church would be a space for people who wrestle with same-sex attraction or have big questions about gender identity and who they are, that this is a place you can, you can be open about those. We're here for you. It's not something you need to hide. It's something God is inviting you to surrender to him for our flourishing. And just before us church people get too comfortable, you see in the church a different kind of devaluing of the body. Which is that we pretty much just don't even think about it. It's just not even on our radar as something that important. So we have this huge increase in lifestyle diseases like obesity and diabetes and heart disease that come from our diets and our sedentary, sedentary lifestyles. So we as Americans, we do not have a good relationship with our bodies. And so we see Jesus' love and mercy in the Lord's Prayer to say, Give us this day our daily bread. The first thing we're called to depend on our Father for is our daily physical bodily needs, our daily bread. Now, this is a template. Jesus isn't saying literally bread, so if you're gluten-free or keto or something, like this still applies to you. It's, it's talking about everything that's physical that we need. God, in his design of human life, Designed us needy, that every day. We can't, like, charge once for the year. We need, we need meals every day. So Jesus is giving a lot of weight to God's design, that we have bodies and these bodies have needs. Last week we talked about the Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, shaping Danielson's instincts with painting the fence and waxing the cars. Hours and hours. I love that movie. I preach on that movie every day, every week. When we pray this prayer of give us our daily bread, Jesus, we see, is being the truer and better Mr. Miyagi and shaping our hearts, shaping, uh, shaping us to know and experience two, two things. One, that we are dependent on the God of the universe. None of us are self-made men or women. We struggle with this so much because many of us are incredibly hard workers. Very few of us have stood in a bread line hoping to have someone give us free food. And there's good stuff. There's, there's glory, glory to God in our, in our work and our diligence. But what this prayer is showing us is that all of our physical needs, when they are met, that comes from God. So your ability to work, your ability to fill out an application and get a job and set an alarm and show up to work and get there safe, day after day and earn your money and get to the store and buy your food. All of this comes from God. Maybe it was the good blessings of the parents we had that showed us how to do stuff, showed us how to be an adult in the world. The, the families, for all their good and bad, it were a place where we could learn how to be people. We could mess up and not be kicked out. This is all from God and it's grace. In seventh grade, I made the basketball team, but I'd been played soccer my whole life, and so I wasn't that good at basketball. And I didn't even know that being a bench warmer was a thing. 
because one, I was little, and two, I played soccer all the time, like played in the games. And so the first scrimmage, when I was a bench warmer, I was like, what is happening? And I was so pouty. I was such a, a little punk. I was on the end of the bench, hanging my head. And then I finally got put in, and I just like slumped around the court. And my dad, on the way home from that game, gave me one of the most gracious but intense come-to-Jesus talks. Like, that is not what men do. You sit by the coach, you cheer for your teammates, you're ready to go in, and you play for one second or all the seconds. Like, in hindsight, I see the the grace of God in that. And any kind of diligence and character forming, that's that's a gift. Jesus wants us to have this true perspective of dependence, even if we're not waiting for bread to fall out of the sky, which God can do, has done. Because there is just nothing sweeter than living in gratitude with a loving Father. Living in gratitude to our loving Father. That is how we are meant to live as humans. That's how, that's how these gifts, the good things, the elements of our life become even sweeter when we see that they're a gift of love. Human flourishing means we live in the sweetness of gratitude with our loving Father. How happy are self-made people? I mean, maybe when they're teaching a seminar on how awesome they are, but self-made people are lonely and judgmental and super harsh. Probably not very fun to be married to. But grateful children, they work and they play and they rest. And this joyful relationship with the Father who's given them everything and the other people who are also dependent on the Father. So we pray for our daily needs, our physical needs, like food and money and health and jobs. And if we have them today, we thank God for them. And the second way Jesus' prayer shapes us is to know that Jesus is Lord over our bodies, not us. I realize I am walking on fire or nails or something dangerous here. This is a very sensitive topic in our culture. But we are dependent on God for our physical needs, and then we are submissive to him and stewarding our bodies according to his design. We don't get to trash our bodies eating whatever we want and then pray for healing from those diseases. We don't get to go crazy with our sexuality and then have consequences of that and expect to just get out of jail free. We see that in the way God designed us, when we submit our bodies to him, we flourish. And this is a clear call of scripture. Look what 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Do you hear the, the words of Scripture? You, Christian, are not your own. I am not my own. We were bought with a price, which was the death of Jesus. Jesus who gave his body for you so that we could know God's love and him meeting our bodily needs. And so this for sure means our, our sexuality, our, our sexual integrity, that we submit to God's design for sexuality. And that's the context of what Paul is talking about there. But I don't think it stops there. I don't know if we could say, well, I can be okay sexually, but I'm going to 
carry around 50 extra pounds for my whole life and eat junk and do nothing physical and say that I'm glorifying God with my body. So when we pray this prayer for our daily bread, our, our hearts are shaped to depend on God and then to submit to God with our, with our physical bodies. A prayer that as we receive our physical needs from him, we would glorify him with our bodies. It would just be a great thing, I think, to chew on this week, meditate on this week. To what extent does your physical body play into your relationship with your Father? How does food affect the way you feel towards God and others? How does your current level of fitness affect how you feel towards God and others? Because Jesus says it definitely does have some kind of effect. And there are spiritual struggles, there are legitimate illnesses that come upon us as suffering. But maybe a good place is to start with this prayer, asking God to provide us with sleep, with the discipline to not eat stuff that's bad for you. And listen, y'all, just as we'd hope someone wrestling with a sexual sin, same-sex attraction or something, would come to me or some other person in the church that they trust to get prayer and support and encouragement, I hope that that would apply for us with our physical health as well. We need accountability with, with how we treat our bodies, with eating, with exercise, with whatever it is. That's not, that's a, what if our church was a safe place to explore health in, in that area? We can journey with you towards flourishing, towards wholeness. Now, food is a super complicated topic. It's so obvious and everywhere. But man, lots of feels, lots of emotion tied up. I know Camille and I have had lots of fight about food. I've talked to other families where food can be a major point of tension. I'm developing a theory that food might be the most important liturgy of our lives. I don't know. That might be heretical. But how and what we eat shapes so much of our lives and our emotions and our relationships. Which brings me to the next thing that Jesus calls us to pray for. Look in verse 12. He says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Call this point the, the relational soul, because we think of souls as, as kind of abstract, but our relationships are very real to us, whether good or bad. The super pastor I mentioned at the beginning, who essentially gained the whole world in terms of ministry, <coughs> but kind of lost his relational soul. And so Jesus trains us to pray in such a way that our relational souls are, are aligned with the truth of the gospel. Jesus, the truer and better, Mr. Miyagi, Miyagi is shaping us into the reality that how, how we relate to God is how we relate to others. How our vertical relationship with God is, is going to define how our horizontal relationships are. When Jesus says, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our, our sins, he's calling us to what Martin Luther calls us to, calls us to in, the, in the theses, that uh, Christian life is one of repentance. The entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance. We don't just say, Father, forgive me, and then we're into heaven, and we don't need to repent or ask for forgiveness anymore. He's saying that, and he, but he's also not saying we need to be saved every day, that if you sin, then you're no longer a Christian, and you need to accept Jesus into your heart again or 
or something like that. No, we're saved from sin and to life with God in a moment, in a season. It's called justification. But this daily asking for forgiveness is not salvation again, but it's Jesus shaping our hearts to savor and glory in the reality that we're sinners saved by grace. We're sinners dependent on grace. We don't receive grace and then go on to like that passage in Galatians said, uh, try to be perfected with our efforts. We don't receive grace to get us into the kingdom and now we got to get to work on our own power. But we are sinners daily, minutely dependent on grace. It is the way to human flourishing that we never move past grace. We never grow tired of the extravagant, unconditional love that God has poured out on us. We are justified, made right, and brought into a relationship with our Father in in a set period of time. But then we are sanctified. We grow into the fullness of Jesus over time, covered in grace, with God's love and delight in us, never waning for a second. But one of the ways that happens is that we daily ask for forgiveness. Specifically, we, we ask God, when we ask God for forgiveness, it's an opportunity to rehearse the gospel again to ourselves, to, to savor it. If we're daily asking for forgiveness, then we, we have no chance of believing that it's our behavior that makes us right with God. I'm forgiven because of what God has done for me in Jesus. And this reality keeps us humble and gracious towards others. If daily we're experiencing the grace of God in our sin, towards our sin, then that enables us, that fills us up to be able to offer grace to those around us, others who sin against us. We depend on God for grace, and then we submit to God and his call to show grace to others. First John 2 makes this really clear. The verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John uses different language than what we've been working with, but God is light. When we are in the light, we're in a relationship with him. There's no place to hate our brother. And Jesus shows us that hate is way more than just physically hating or physically murdering, but there's indifference. There's all kinds of levels of it. So our relationships stem out of our relationship with God. They also show us the quality or the depth of our relationship with God. Because how we relate is how we relate. So if relationships are, are hard, if you don't have very close friends, if you have friends for a little bit and then you move on to another group because those people don't like you or you don't like them, then there's probably something playing out in our relationship with God. Because we're not able to forgive others when we haven't really experienced that grace. And this is like a red flag. When the shortcomings, the, the sins of others are just unfathomable, unfathomable to us, just staggering, how could a human do that? That means there's a huge break in our own experience of grace. As we see our, the depth of our own sin and our need for grace, and we're just like never really surprised by other people's sin. 
and there might be an element where we're resisting grace from God. So we have, we're not filled up. We have nothing to offer other people. Grace has to come from somewhere. We can't muster grace on our own. Maybe for a minute, but it will not last. This relational soul bit of the prayer, receiving forgiveness and extending it, is so epic. It's, it, it's just so profound. And if you've been around youth groups or conferences, everybody wants to change the world. Everybody wants to do something epic and, and fancy for, and famous for God. But what good is that if we lose our relational souls? What if we saw receiving grace and extending grace as changing the world? One, one moment, one relationship at a time. What would it do for the long-term health of our culture if we had Christians living the grace of the gospel in their marriages and, and in their, with their children faithfully, generation after generation? What would that do? We ask for forgiveness for specific things. We actually name them before our Father. Father, I lusted. Father, I, I lost my temper. Father, I feel zero desire for you. Father, I ate my feelings just now. Father, I've neglected my neighbors. Father, I lied. Father, forgive me these specific debts. We pray as forgiven children receiving a new mercy. And so then when others sin against us, we're so quick to be like, me too, bro. Or if it's not something we struggle with, we're, we're living in the reality of if it weren't for the grace of God, I would struggle with that too. And how I currently understand forgiveness, I feel like when we say to someone, I forgive you, it's really kind of like a prayer that God would give us the gift of forgiveness. Kind of within that statement, I forgive you, you're kind of saying, I'm going to pray that God would do that work in my heart. There's not a switch you flip and whoosh, there's no more pain. They're saying, I'm going to pray God does that work in my heart. I'm not going to bring it up to you. I'm not going to stew on it when it's brought up in my brain. When it comes up in my brain, I'm going to pray that God would, God would give me grace to extend grace. That God would do that work in our heart. And this takes the pressure off of trying to like stiff arm some kind of heart state of forgiveness, but instead puts us in a posture of dependence and submission where we need grace and we're submitting to the call to extend grace. This brings us to communion, which is perfect. This is a physical, bodily tradition, ordinance, command of Jesus to embrace the spiritual reality of Jesus' broken body and shed blood, uh, which was for our forgiveness of sins, which is our source of grace, which is how we extend it to others. The communion servers can come forward. Our tradition here is to pass out uh, the cracker, wait till everybody's served, and then partake together, and then we pass out the cup of juice and do the same. This uh, table is open to anyone who calls Jesus Lord of their life, but if you're here today and you're wrestling with who Jesus is and where you stand with him, I invite you to just let the tray go, go by and instead consider Jesus 
consider where you are with, with your heavenly Father and if he's become your Father yet. Let me pray. Father God, I praise you for your manifold wisdom you show us in Jesus Christ and his gospel. I praise you for both the simplicity of the gospel that a child can understand it and also the incredible depth of the gospel that we can spend eternity growing in joy and glory and the depth and nuance and intricacy and wholeness of it. Father, I thank you for this prayer that you have given us through your son Jesus. I thank you for how it shapes us. I thank you for how it defines our reality. Father, would you give us a, a thirst to pray, a thirst for you and time with you, a thirst to be shaped by the structure of prayer Jesus gives us. Father, I pray that we would feel zero condemnation for how much we pray or what our prayer lives are like, and instead just feel you as our loving Father calling us to further up and further in to the good life with you. Be, be with us as we partake of communion. May this simple cracker and simple cup of juice uh, be, uh, be a place where our bodies meet the spiritual reality of the gospel. In Jesus' name. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples in the upper room. And he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. Father, we obey our Lord Jesus' command to partake in his supper. I thank you for uh, your mercy and grace to us in giving us this physical, bodily thing to do that captures a, a beautiful reality of our life with you. Draw us close to you as your children, dependent and joyful and submissive. In Jesus' name, amen.